God is sovereign. This means that God is in control. God is the creator of all things. God is before all things. Before a thing even existed, God was. And God will always be upon his throne. God will always be sovereign. God will always be in control. And God is the rightful king of everything. And one day he will claim that throne for himself. He will claim that leadership, that rule, that reign for himself. Part of the reason that I'm mentioning to you that God is sovereign and that God is in control is that we are not. If you think about what it means to be human, I think one of the things that you must conclude is that to be human is to deal with so much that is completely outside of your control. If you think about who you are here today, what makes you, you, the reality is that so much of it is beyond anything that you are sovereign over. So much of it is beyond your control. And so many of the events in our lives that shape us, so many of the events in life that mold us, so many of the things that happen to us or in our lives are events that we have had no control over. And I think that one of the marks of Christian maturity is to learn how to get better at dealing with the reality that there is so much that we cannot control in human life. This passage in front of us today is a passage in which David has no control. David has to wait by a stone heap out in the wilderness on the outskirts of town for three days to figure out how Saul feels about him in order to figure out what his future holds. You know, probably many of you in this room have had the experience or will have the experience at some point in your life of waiting for letters to come from various universities that you have applied to. And you've waited or you will wait for word to come. You know, what do they say? What, what are they going to, are they going to accept me? Am I going to be admitted or am I going to be denied? And that, that word is a word where it's out of your control now and you are just waiting for what someone else is going to say. But David here is in a moment where through no fault of his own, Saul has become enraged against him and now he's waiting. He's waiting to discover Do I get to go home, or am I going to be driven into the wilderness? Now, just to recap the story for a couple of minutes, it's beautiful. David comes back from the presence of the prophet Samuel, and he finds his best friend, Jonathan. You know, and he he tells Jonathan, he says, look, here's the deal, man. If I am guilty of sin, if if I've done something wrong, because your dad, he wants to kill me, if I've I've done something wrong, if there's guilt in me, then kill me yourself. I mean, what an impressive thing for David to say. He was just so sensitive to sin. But Jonathan, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, when you read 1 Samuel 19, like we did last week, apparently what happened was Saul put a hit on David's life. Jonathan heard about the hit that Saul put on David's life. And Jonathan then went and interceded for David and then went 
and talked to Saul about it and told Saul, look, you should not feel this way because David is the guy who killed Goliath, so you should receive him. And Saul said, you're right, as long as the Lord lives, I will not touch him. And that apparently was the last thing that Jonathan had heard about the matter. Apparently he hadn't heard about the whole episode with Saul putting a second hit on David's life and the messengers at Michael's house and David running out the window and fleeing to Samuel. Apparently Jonathan is still in this little fantasy land like, my dad loves you. Things are good to go. So he tells David, he's like, surely it is, that is not so. My dad doesn't do anything unless he tells me first. David replies to Jonathan and says, no, the reality is there is but a step between me and death, verse 4. That's one of my favorite lines from the life of David. How many of you have ever, ever felt that before? You know, that there is but a step between me and death. I am, I'm right on the edge. I am right on that cliff. And, and David felt that, and so Jonathan said, okay, well, what can I do for you then? How can I help you? I, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm on your team. What can I do to help you? And so David said, well, here, here's the deal. You know, in a few days, there's going to be the, the feast of the new moon. And, and you know our tradition. You know that when the new moon festival comes around, uh, there's a table that's set for you and me and Saul and Abner. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be absent from that meal. And uh, if, if your dad notices that I'm gone and, and he asks about me, then what I want you to tell him is that my brothers asked me to go eat the meal, the new moon feast with them back in Bethlehem. And if he's angry about it, then we'll know that he intends harm for me. But if he's cool with it, if he's nice about it, then we'll know that he actually doesn't want to take my life as you propose. And so Jonathan says, absolutely, and Jonathan re-then connects and reaffirms the covenant that David and Jonathan had made together. Uh, he announces, you know, when I die or if I die, be good to my family, be good to my descendants. And David would remember that commitment and covenant that he had made with Jonathan here in this chapter. Years later, after Jonathan was dead, David would actually look for, and we'll read this when we get to that section, but he would actually look for descendants of Jonathan to be kind to. But then Jonathan says, you know, when I figure this out, somehow I'm going to have to get word to you. And, they, you know, of course, they lived in an era where they couldn't just text each other or something like that. So Jonathan came up with this plan. He says, you wait out here in the wilderness. You wait out here by this stone heap. And, and after the three days of this feast are over, I'm going to come out. I'll, I'll bring a servant boy of mine. And I'll come out with my arrows and I'll have a little target practice. I'll just pretend that I'm practicing my archery. And I'll shoot the arrows. And, and if I shout to my servant as he's collecting the arrows, if I shout, the arrows are beyond you, then you'll know that that's code for get out of here. You've got to run. You know, Saul does want to kill you. But if I shout to my servant, boy, the arrows are on this side of you, then what that means is you're safe and you're allowed to come back to the palace because Saul has favored you. So uh, they make the agreement. David goes to the stone heap where he camps out for three days. Jonathan goes to the new moon festival. 
Uh, he sits there the first day, and uh, there's him sitting in his chair, and Abner in his, and Saul in his, and there's the empty seat where David normally would sit, but uh, he was absent, and so it's an empty chair. And Saul says to himself, surely he is unclean. That's why he's not here. There were all different types of ways that an Israelite devout man could become ceremonially unclean. And you'd have to go through a day of purification to become clean. And so Saul tells himself, you know, maybe he's just unclean. He's a godly guy. He doesn't want to defy uh, the the Lord of Israel. And and so uh, maybe he's unclean. But on day two, he looks at Jonathan and he says, hey, where is David? Jonathan tells him and gives him the cover story. Well, his brothers asked to eat a meal with him in Bethlehem. That's why he's not here. He went and ate with his brothers instead. And so Saul goes nuts. We read it in the text. He pulls out his spear and he throws it at Jonathan. And Jonathan, as the spear, you know, as he evades the spear, he concludes that spear was not meant for me. That spear was meant for David. And so he leaves in anger. He does not touch the meal. He leaves in anger. And the next morning, he goes out to the field. He brings this child with him. He shoots the arrow, and he shouts, the arrow is beyond you, which was code for, David, you're in danger. You need to flee for your life. But then Jonathan can't handle it anymore. He's got to actually see David, and so he risks it all, and he tells the child, go back into Uh, the village, go back into town, leave me, take my weapons with me. And after the child departs, David emerges from the stone heap. And these two men, they embrace each other. They weep. It tells us that David weeps even uh, more passionately than Jonathan. And you can understand why Jonathan got to go home. David had to go run out into the wilderness. And they clung to each other. And this would be Almost the last time that these two men would see each other. There'll be one brief moment later on in their lives where where their paths will intersect one last and final time before Jonathan dies. But David, in this moment, has no control over what is happening in his life. And maybe for you, you can relate to an event. You can relate to a circumstance. You can relate to something in your life that you would say, That is completely out of my control, and I would not have chosen it. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Matt was sharing with us as a church, and he talked to you about his cystic fibrosis that he has. And we rejoiced with Matt and Bree this week because this last Wednesday, they actually had their second son, their second child, little baby crew. And so they're getting a little time together right now. But, you know, as he was sharing with you, he shared with you how difficult and, you know, the reality of that illness that he's carrying around in his body. There are things like that that we would not choose, but yet come into our lives and they shape our lives greatly. It might be poverty that has come into a person's life. It might be uh, the difficulty of rejection that comes into our life. It might be a divorce that has unwillingly come into your life. There are so many different things that are outside of our control. You can't make someone else obey the Lord. You can't make someone else be devoted to the Lord. You can't make someone else do the right thing. 
Some of you have children that are now adult children. You raise them to know the gospel. You raise them to love the Lord and you're watching them right now in their lives perhaps not loving the Lord, running away from the Lord. And it's a very difficult reality. These are things that we would not choose but are part of the human experience. And what I want to show you are four things about all of this in David's life. Number one, God desires to go with us into the undesirable elements of life. God desires to go with us into the undesirable elements of life. David would write things like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You do not write a sentence like that inside of God's Word unless you are a person who has done a little bit of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And what David had discovered is that in the midst of all of that pain, in the midst of that undesirable route in life, the Lord was right there with him. You see, the reality of the Gospel is that since God went into the undesirable for us, going to the cross, we can conclude that He will certainly go into the undesirable with us. He went for us, so He will go with us. Think about what Jesus endured for you and for me when He went to the cross. I don't know if you realize this, but in the New Testament... They speak very little of the physical suffering of Jesus upon the cross. And they'll talk about the beating, they'll talk about the flogging and scourging, uh, they'll talk about the mockery, all these different things. But when they get to the crucifixion, usually it's just a line that says something like, and he was crucified. And the reason that they don't really get into it is partly probably because it was so gruesome, but also because the original readers they, they were familiar with crucifixion. The Romans had perfected it to bring out the worst kind of physical pain and agony and embarrassment that a human being could go through while they were experiencing capital punishment. It was almost the exact opposite from whatever even a civilized, a civilized nation might embrace for capital punishment. I mean, it was brutal, it was slow, it was long. It could take someone almost a week at times to die upon a cross. In fact, if you want to read of the physical suffering that Jesus endured on the cross, it is actually better to go to Psalm 22 in the Old Testament where a prophecy was given about the suffering physically upon the cross. And as Jesus died upon the cross, His hands pierced, His feet pierced, as He slowly suffocated to death and pulled Himself up to grab each breath as the thorn of crowns was jammed into His brow. His suffering was physically intense for you and for me. But not only was His suffering physical, we all know this, Jesus' suffering was also intensely spiritual and emotional and psychological. I, I throw all those together just to say that there was an inner suffering that Jesus Christ endured for you and me. I mean, there upon the cross, it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus became sin for us there upon the cross. Have you ever had the experience where you've been maybe reading the news or watching a news report or something like that, and 
the particular piece that you're reading about is about something particularly evil and terrible. And as you read, perhaps, this event, you read of some horrific murder or something like that, as you read the gory details, have you, have you ever caught yourself just feeling, feeling like I don't know what to do with this information? This is a level of evil that is so grotesque, so un, uh, you know, uh, uh, just so ugly, so, 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 so distasteful that, that it's just doing something inside of you. Imagine having every crime, every form of evil, every form of abuse, every form of sin, imagine having all of it come upon you during three hours upon that cross. That's what Jesus was enduring for you and for me. He was becoming sin for us. There was a spiritual and emotional and psychological pain that Jesus was enduring in that moment. But not only that, Jesus was enduring also the experience of judgment from His Father for you and for me. The actual wrath of God was being partaken of Jesus drank the wrath of God there in that moment. This is what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The Old Testament was filled with allusions to the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus was drinking in the punishment that we deserved there upon that cross. And so I'm painting this picture so that we will have a high view of the suffering that Jesus endured for us so that we will understand that if He was willing to take within Himself something that undesirable for you and for me, don't we know and don't we believe that He will walk with us through the smaller, undesirable elements of our lives in the here and now? He's walking with us. He's loving us. He's, he's enduring with us. He was willing to go to the cross for us. He is willing to go with us in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our difficulties. And David was about to discover that. David was about to feel what it was like for him to be driven from what he wanted into that which he did not want. But he was going to discover that God was going to walk with him in the midst of all of that. I remember a sermon that I heard years ago by an African-American pastor named E.V. Hill. He was probably in his 60s or 70s at the time that he delivered this message. And, and he was just fiery, you know, the way that he preached. It was very memorable. And uh, he, 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 in this message, he talked about the Lord going with us in the midst of all the difficulties. And particularly, he was talking about the difficulties of evangelism and discipleship in the context of this message. And I love the way that he shared it. He came to the place in the Great Commission where he talked about Jesus saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think that's the King James version of it. And lo, I am with you always. And it was a way for the Lord to say, you know, consider it, I'm with you always. But E.V. Hill, what he did with that is he had this cool way of saying, he took the word lo, L-O, and he made it lo, L-O-W. And he said, and he just over and over again, I remember it in this message, I can't do it justice, I'm a white guy. But the way he said it, he's like, and lo, and he just, I, that's the way I remember this message because he just was talking about in the highs and in the lows of life, the Lord is walking with us. So number one, 
You need to see this. God wills to go with you into the undesirable elements of life. But number two, God uses the undesirable elements of life to eliminate other dependencies that we have. You see, what David was going to be able to sing were things like Psalm 62, verse 1, when he said, For God alone my soul waits in silence. And we might all say that we are trying to build our lives upon the Lord and that God is our foundation and that all that we need is Him. But the reality is we so often carry around functional foundations. We carry around a person or a certain amount of money or a certain square footage that we look at and say, actually, as long as I have these things, I'm okay. As long as I have these things, I'm satisfied. But you see, the Lord was taking David into a place where he could not lean upon Michael. He could not lean upon Jonathan. He could not lean upon Saul. He could not lean upon the palace. He could not lean on anything or anyone except the Lord. And the Lord desires to go with us into the undesirable, but He will use the undesirable to help eliminate all the other things that we might build our lives upon, that we might be dependent upon in our lives. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he said, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is purifying our faith as we go into the undesirable elements of life so that He and He alone, more exclusively, can be the foundation that our lives are built upon. I'm sure many of you remember the story from John chapter 4 in the life of Jesus where Jesus went to the city of Samaria, and it was a city that Jewish men, Jewish people did not often go to because there was a conflict with the Samaritan people at that time, a religious debate, basically, that divided these people racially and religiously. But Jesus went anyways. He needed to go there, John's gospel tells us, and he sat down at the well of the city during the heat of the day, and this woman came out. And Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. And she was a Samaritan woman, he a Jewish man. And so she said to him, why are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? This was inappropriate in that culture. It was something a Jewish man would not do. And Jesus announced to her, if you knew who it was who speaks with you, you would ask water from him and he would give you living water. She didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. It's a little bit of a cryptic statement, you know, if you're out there by the well. And so she started talking about the well that they had. Well, speaking of wells, this well was discovered by Jacob. It's Jacob's well, and it's pretty impressive, don't you think? You're talking about water, now I'm talking about water. And so Jesus then replied to her again, and he said, again, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask of him, and he would give you living water, and out of your heart, would flow rivers of living water and you would never thirst again. She again did not understand and so Jesus then said to her, call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, it's right that you've said I have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Jesus was not doing this to ridicule the woman. He was not doing this to embarrass the woman 
but he did this to help this woman understand that unless she came to a place in her life where she ceased to drink from the water of all these men, thinking that they could be the ones to satisfy her, unless she stopped drinking from that water, she would never be satisfied with the true water. And so the Lord, he'll often do what he has to do to get us to a place where we realize it's not that person. It's not that money. It's not that success. It's not a degree from that particular school. It's not any of these things that I need to build my life upon. It is Him. It's Him. And I will ultimately only be satisfied within Him. All right, so that's the second element I wanted to show you, that God will use the undesirable to burn away, to to remove our other dependencies. But number three, I wanted to say this. God invites us to move into that which is undesirable. You see, for David, uh, that time out there in the wilderness for three days on the outskirts of town, it was really a time of decision in his life. For three days, he stayed by this stone heap. Some of your Bibles, as I was going through it, you might have a different translation. And a lot of other translations, instead of calling it the stone heap, it calls it the, the rock or the stone of Izel. Uh, That basically means the rock or the stone of departure. And they called it that way. They called it that because that was the place where David had to depart and go into the wilderness where Saul would pursue him now for many years. And so it became known as the rock of departure. But you see, that's the thing about this place is that David could not stay there. You know, when Jonathan came out and shot the arrows and said to his, his servant, hey, the arrows are beyond you, and they went and they wept and embraced and all of that, David had to come to a place where he said, you know, what I have to do now is I have to pack up and I've got to go. I've got to get out into the wilderness all by myself. And eventually people would come to him. There'd be a, a group of 400 and then 600 men who would gather together who would be with him. But they weren't really all that comforting. They weren't really all that helpful. But for a long time, David was just by himself as he went out into that wilderness. He could not stay, in other words, at that rock of Azel. He could not stay at that stone heap. He had to move forward. And what I wanted to say to you is that God invites us to move into, to just propel forward into that which is undesirable. You see, the reality in life is that there is so much that we cannot change. That's part of not having control over it. We cannot change it. We can't change the person. We can't change the past. We can't change our old sins. We can't change any of those things. But so often we can get stuck at them. We can't stay there at that stone heap and just go, oh, why, why, why did this happen? Why, why, why did this occur? And David could have sat there for days and weeks and months and said, why won't Saul let me go back? I mean, David, if you'd have asked him, hey, what is the path to you becoming the next king in Israel? You know what he would have said? I'm sure he would have just looked with his eyes like all of us would have looked with our eyes and he would have said, well, I killed Goliath. Everybody loves me. And then Saul let me marry his daughter, and Saul's son is now my best friend. 
He's the prince in Israel. He's in the rightful line to the throne. But he already made a deal with me that I get to be the king in the future. He made that covenant with me. And so I, the path forward is Saul like becomes my mentor and I become part of his family. I'm like adopted in. And then maybe someday Saul's just like, you know what, I'm getting too old for this. And he takes off his crown and he gives it to me. And we have a big ceremony, high fives all around. It's like working out. I could see the path right in front of me. And now here's this moment where that path, it's destroyed. It's destroyed. It's destroyed. Spend five minutes ministering to real human beings and you'll discover a lot of paths that that people thought, I thought it was going to, and it just doesn't happen that way. But what can we do? We've just got to go forward. We have got to move forward into this new thing that is in front of us. And as I say that, may I remind you that that thing that looks so terrible, that that thing that looks so horrible, might be the very thing that produces God's greatest work in your heart and life. And the reason that I'm able to say that is because the emblem of our whole faith, the cross, was designed to do so many terrible things, but in actuality produced so many beautiful things. Let me explain to you what I mean. Do you know why the Romans invented the cross? They invented the cross so that when people would die on it, on the outskirts of town, whoever it was that was trying to rise up against Rome, they would look and see in that cross, as someone was dying for days on the outskirts of town, at the, usually at the, at the gates of the city, they would see these people being crucified and they would realize, Rome is powerful, don't mess with them. So the whole idea of the cross is that it would scare people into submission. But isn't it interesting that the cross of Jesus Christ has become the thing that has emboldened millions of of followers of Jesus for 2,000 years now. It has been the thing that has taken martyrs to their grave in confidence and in boldness. Or think of this. As Jesus did His ministry, as Jesus spoke and taught, the religious leaders, they did not like the message of Jesus. And so they wanted to see Him killed in order to stop what they considered an offensive message. But have you ever stopped to consider that the cross of Jesus Christ actually created the very message that humanity needed? The religious leaders designed it to stop the message of Christ, but it actually created the message of Christ. And you can go on and on through what the cross has done. It was designed to silence grace, but it released Grace. It was designed to keep Christ's message from our ears, but it actually puts it, embeds it into our hearts. It was designed to destroy a movement, but it actually caused a movement. It was designed by the devil to stop the messianic plan of God, but it actually enabled God to love people and to come and live inside of our hearts. It was designed to produce shame, but it brought glory. It was designed to cause pain, but it removed pain. It was designed to wound, but it heals. It was designed to condemn, 
but it releases forgiveness. It was designed to lead to corruption and death, but it leads to everlasting life and glory. And I mention all of that to simply point out that we are believing in a God who takes something that was designed for so much evil, so much heartache, so much pain, so much ugliness, and redeems it to be the most beautiful thing ever. It's, it's the thing that we celebrate, the cross of Christ. So, when the undesirable comes into your life, don't fear. Because the reality is, the Lord could take that very thing as He did with the cross, and He could redeem it in such beautiful ways. Okay, so I've given you three things so far. The first three things are things that I think a lot of us would confess to and rejoice over and Maybe we would say, thank you, Nate, for the reminder. That's a good word, you know, kind of thing. You want to say that? You could, you could say it right now if you want to. Okay, so, but let me give you one last thing. This one, I hope you like it. You might not. It, it, it definitely makes me feel uncomfortable. We, we like to hear about the Lord going with us into trials. We know trials are coming. We, we like to hear that he's walking with us. We like to hear that he'll redeem us. We like to hear that he'll use those trials. But God was doing something in David that was really important through this. You see, there would come a time in David's life when he was older that he was going to have to, from time to time, choose to do the difficult thing. It is one thing when a sickness comes into you. It is one thing when some trial comes into your life. It is one thing to, without choice, be thrown into something difficult. But advanced, an advanced degree of Christian maturity is when we come to a place in our lives where we would actually choose the hard thing. And the Lord was doing something in David that was helping to build and prepare David for the days in his life when he would not be thrust into the hard things, but when he would have to choose the hard thing. To where in those moments he'd be able to say, you know, the Lord was faithful to me before, the Lord will be faithful to me again. Those of you who are here today and you have multiple children who are at least a few years down the line and they're in, in, in raising them up, you understand what I'm talking about. Because when you have your first child, usually the rule of thumb is that you're a little more protective. You know, I, just, I see some parents, it's like, you just might as well get some bubble wrap and just wrap them up. <laughs> you know, because it's just so protective. But then, you know, as time goes on, if you have more kids... You know, it's interesting, like your last child is like, ah, they'll be all right. <laughs> and you kind of just, because after time, you realize like, oh, they're, they're a little tougher than maybe I thought. You know, they're able to do it. They're able to make it, you know, kind of thing. This is the idea here, is that the Lord might be using the trials we do not choose so that we will see his faithfulness in them and get to the place where we will actually choose a trial for ourselves. Where we would actually say, Yes to Jesus saying to us, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross 
and you deny yourself and you come after me. That is an advanced degree of Christian maturity. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, talked about this. Right after talking about, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself and follow after me. Right after talking about that, Jesus gave an analogy. He said, so, which of you, you know, if you were building a tower, you would not count the cost before you built the tower? Of course you would. You'd try to figure out, do I have enough money and supplies and skills to be able to build the tower? And then he said, and also, think about a king who has a certain amount of soldiers and a bigger army comes to attack him. He's going to sit down and calculate, can I defeat them with my army? And if not, I'll go out and ask for terms of peace. Usually, the way that we think of that of that passage is that we think that what Jesus is saying, I mean, the saddest interpretation of all that is totally incorrect is the idea that Jesus is somehow saying, so, you know, think about it. If you want to be my disciple, you know, think about it. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, but you should just really think about it first, you know, and, and some believers are going to count the cost and realize, ah, it's too hard. So no, I don't want to be a disciple believer. I'll just be a believer believer. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's inviting all of us into the disciple life. I think that what Jesus might be saying when he says, which of you, when you build a tower, I think he might be saying, I'm trying to build something. And I'm trying to go to war. And I'm looking for disciples to see if I have the right materials for building and I have the right soldiers for this war who will choose at times the difficulty. The reason I'm saying this today is because this is not only an American God, but this is also a false God of this particular community that what we want more than anything is our protection, our control, our safety. And there come times in the Christian life where the Lord's going to put something into your heart and he's going to ask you to take a step that is going to inconvenience you. And it might be difficult and it might be hard. But trust and know he's stood with you through every trial so far. It's been some of the sweetest events of your life. He will be faithful to you again if you choose the difficulty. I realize that can be a hard thing to hear, but I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for you that we would get better at choosing that which is difficult, choosing that which is hard, as Christ would have us to do. So I'm just going to close in prayer. I know the worship team's around here somewhere lurking, waiting to spring up onto the stage, but I'm just going to close in prayer. I'm going to give a little moment of, of quiet to where you can say that to the Lord. Lord, I'm not here to consume. I'm not here to just take in. I'm not here to just be blessed that you're with me in trials. I'll actually choose the hardship at times. So let's pray that to the Lord, if that's our heart. Father, we do.